This is a podcast of the Church of Indian Lake. This morning, would you take them and open to the Gospel of John? I'd like to read from John chapter 12, starting at verse 20, and reading through to verse 26. John chapter 12, verse 20 to 26. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. I asked in first service, let me ask again, are there any Greeks with us today? Anybody here that's Greek? Anybody here have Greek blood? Anybody speak a little bit of Greek? Any little Greek speakers here? Well, I happen to speak a little Greek. Athanasia Kulamentis is the little Greek that I know, and that is the name of my five-foot-high Greek mother. I am half Greek, so that's the only Greek that I know. I don't speak any myself, but my mom is from Greece, and the Greeks gave us the Olympics, and they gave us philosophy, and they gave us democracy, and they gave us olive oil. Do we need anything else? Well, the Greeks tell us that we also need Jesus. And so the Greeks come to Philip, who finds Andrew. And by the way, isn't Andrew a likable figure in the scriptures? We don't know much about him, other than he's always bringing people to Jesus. In John chapter 1, it's Andrew who brings Peter to Jesus. In John 6, Andrew brings the little lad with the loaves and fishes to Jesus. In this text today, Andrew and Philip bring the Greeks to Jesus. Let's be Andrews. Let's continually be about the business of bringing other people to Jesus. When I flew into Nashville last night, there's a bunch of Muslims on my plane. Others met them at the airport. They were speaking Arabic together. More and more, the Lord is bringing Muslims into our cities and our job places and our communities. And we're a little bit nervous about that. We're a little bit in trepidation about how to interact with Muslims. But I want to encourage you, just be an Andrew to Muslims. You don't have to know the Quran. You don't have to have a PhD in Islamics. You don't have to have the answer for the Palestinian issue. All you have to do is to bring children and mothers and fathers to Jesus. In March of this year, I was sitting in the office of a Sudanese uh, official. He had been the associate ambassador to both Libya and Saudi Arabia. We were discussing a medical project we were working on together. And at the end of that little business meeting, I asked him if there's anything I could pray for him. About And he mentioned he had a teenage son who was struggling, so I stood up, lifted my hands, and prayed in Jesus' name for this man, prayed he'd be a good father, and he'd understand his son, and God would help his son come right. He's amening me all the way through the prayer. His eyes are kind of misting up, and at the end of the prayer, this is what he said. I will remember this prayer all the days of my life. I have many Christian friends, but this is the first time in my life that a Christian has ever prayed for me. A simple business meeting and an opportunity to introduce a man to Jesus. We have a friend in Sudan that does cake ministry to Muslims. Every week she makes cookies or a dessert or a cake and goes to a different Muslim neighbor, just knocks on the door, says, here's some cookies, 
here's a cake, I love you, Jesus loves you, and it's that simple, it's led to conversations, it's led to people coming to faith, you could do that, that's not too scary, is it? To a Muslim colleague, take them cookies at work, say, hey, this is because I love you and Jesus loves you, or visiting them in your neighborhood, knocking on the door, inviting them over for a meal, just be an Andrew, just bring Muslims to Jesus. Andrew tells Jesus about the Greeks, and then Jesus responds in a puzzling way. He talks about being glorified. He talks about a kernel of wheat falling to the ground. He talks about hating your life to keep it in eternity. And then he says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. What was Jesus talking about? I'm sure the Greeks were a little bit confused. You know, Greeks are confused enough already. You could come to one of my family reunions crying and shouting and laughing and emotional and screaming. And this is, of course, when they're happy. And if you have two Greeks, you have three opinions. So I'm sure there was a little befuddlement going on. We want to see Jesus, they say. And when they do, Jesus responds, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. What was Jesus talking about? Where was Jesus that they and we might follow him? The context of our passage helps. It is the Passion Week. Jesus is only a few days away from Calvary. Jesus knows, John 13, the next chapter that his hour has come. And Jesus is saying to the Greeks and to you and to I, you want to see me? You want to serve me? You are welcome. But you should know that I am going to the cross. And anyone who follows me must go there too. Whatever the agenda of the Greeks to see Jesus, he informs them and us that anyone who wants to serve Jesus must in one way or another end up crucified. I'd like us therefore this morning to reflect on three martyrdoms and how God wants us to live them. Three deaths that God wants us to die. The red, the green, and the white. And at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you to respond if you are willing to live dead. The red martyrdom is the most famous and the least common. We call it red because it refers literally to dying for Jesus, to blood being spilt. The red martyrdom is following Jesus to physical death for your faith. Church history tells us that Peter died in Rome, and according to one tradition, persecution was so fierce in the city that all of the people were fleeing. Peter had moved to Rome, was pastoring the flock there, but he too, because of the unspeakable persecution, was deserting the city. On the way out of Rome, the tradition says, Peter encountered Jesus, and Jesus was heading against the flow back into the city, and Peter, surprised, asked him, Quo vadis Domini? Where are you going, Lord? And Jesus responded to Peter, Back into the city to die again for the ones that you desert. Peter, ashamed, turned on his heel, returned to Rome, and there witnessed and read to Jesus by being crucified upside down. Upside down, according to the tradition, because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. Greeks and disciples through all the centuries have been asking the same question. Quo vadis, Domini? Quo vadis? Where are you going, Lord? Where are you going? And the answer of Jesus has not changed. Jesus is still going to the cross. And if we are his servants, we must follow him there. Quo vadis, Domini, where are you going, Lord? 
Jesus is still going to Libya. Jesus is still going to Afghanistan. Jesus is going to the Somali pirates. Jesus is going to Yemen. Jesus is going to Syria. Jesus is going to the Muslim peoples in your neighborhood. If as a church, if as a Christian, you want to go where Jesus is going, it is back into the cities and the places of death and destruction and oppression and resistance and war. It is to the unreached. It's to the Pashtun. It's to the Bedouin Arabs. Where are you going, Lord? Quo vadis Domini? I'm going to my death. I'm going to die in an effort to save others. I'm going where everyone else is fleeing. I am going where no one else wants to go. It's never been an unusual thing to die for Jesus. Literally, it has happened all throughout history. We are the exception. American Christianity is not the normal Christian life. It started with Paul killing others and ironically dying the red death himself. And that was the way, dying for Christ, that Christians used to live. Elizabeth Elliot writes of her slain husband Jim. Memi, you know the story from the 1950s. Five missionaries tried to engage the Aka Indians in Ecuador and were killed. They became quite well known and their story broadly spread around. But Elliot writes about her husband. He and the other men with him who died were hailed as heroes, martyrs. I do not approve, she says. Neither would they have approved. Is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for Him after all so great? Is not the second the logical conclusion of the first? Furthermore, to live for God is to die. I die daily, Paul said. It is to lose everything that we might gain Christ. It is in thus laying down our lives that we find them. In Roman Colosseums and Arabian deserts and communist jails, islands of the Pacific, for 2,000 years, men and women, young and old, have died for Christ. They've shed their blood for Jesus. One Christian in India, writes David Platt in his book Radical, while being skinned alive, looked at his persecutors and said, I thank you for this. Tear off my old garment, for soon I will put on the garment of Christ's righteousness. Christopher Love was in prison, due to be executed. He wrote a note to his wife saying, Today they will sever me from my physical head, but they cannot sever me from my spiritual head, Christ. And as Love walked to his death at the executioner's block, his wife applauded and Love sang of glory. If you're standing on the island of Hawaii, John Piper writes and drew a straight line to Australia. Somewhere in the middle of that line would be a group of islands called the New Hebrides. Today we call them Vanuatu. In the mid-1800s, a ship took two missionaries. Those missionaries went ashore, were immediately caught by cannibals, killed, and eaten. The news spread back to England, and a man named John Patton, who'd been pastoring for ten years, heard this story, and God used it to call him to go back to Vanuatu as a missionary. But an elder in his church tried to dissuade him. The elder's name was Dixon. And Mr. Dixon said to John Patton, John, you can't go to the New Hebrides. You'll be eaten by cannibals. And Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, your own prospect, your own body, is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. And what does it matter if you are eaten by worms and I'm eaten by cannibals? For in the day of resurrection... Mine will be much more glorious. 
you know the story, Patton went to Vanuatu and through a series of adventures due largely to his little black Scottish terrier, he led many people to Christ. They came to kill him many times, but these big, fierce, strong cannibals were afraid of that little black dog. His life was preserved. It's a great story if you want to read it. His wife died. His daughter died. It wasn't without suffering. He dug their grave with his bare hands, but God used his obedience. And the point is this. We all die. Did you know you are going to die? We all die. What does it matter how? Many have shed their blood through history for Muslim peoples. Maybe now it's our turn. The red martyrdom, it's not to be feared, but it's not to be sought either in that sense. All those who die for Christ should not be considered heroes, and they should not be considered fools. It's merely following Jesus. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, the cross, there my servant will be also. I have a friend that I asked to take his wife and small children to Somalia. We were sitting in a little restaurant in Springfield, Missouri, and I asked his wife if she understood what that actually meant or could mean. She took a few days and then she wrote this email. In prayer, I cry with Jesus over these matters, over the ramifications on our children, on my husband, on me, on our marriage, on the work. We cry together. Jesus speaks to me comfortingly, all die. I know these words may not comfort all, but they comfort me. They mean so much to me, these two words. They give me such peace. They humble me. They bring me clarity. They ground me with perspective for living well. Death is so normal. Death touches all. Death often comes unannounced. I cannot control it, nor will I be ruled by some irrational fear of it. What fools who do. I most likely won't know it's coming. It could come today or tomorrow. Harm the same. I do hope, she writes, God isn't leading us to die in Somalia at the hands of hatred. But I will not be ruled by that possibility. And I would be a fool to think that my life anywhere is free from death. I see it as a terrible, meaning huge and strong privilege to serve God among these lost. And I surrender with great joy to His plan trusting, however, He intends to sow our lives. All die. Death is so normal. We have one life to live, and we've got one death to give. And if by red martyrdom we die and glorify Christ, why not? It's how He died. It is where and how He went. Wouldn't it be an honor if He allows us to go the same way, if in death our witness is red? On November 17, 1957, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon titled, Loving Your Enemies, and this is what he said. To our most bitter opponents we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we will win freedom 
but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Jesus wants his church, he wants us, not only to turn the other cheek, but to lay down our lives for precious, unreached people. Many others have done it before us. Now it's our turn to wear down Islam by our capacity to suffer, to live dead, to walk to our execution while our spouse, while our mother, while our father, while our son claps and applauds and we sing glory. The second martyrdom this morning I'd like us to reflect on is the green martyrdom. In about 350 A.D., a young Romanized English boy was captured by Irish pirates and put in a leather-covered boat, trundled across the Irish Sea and taken as a slave to Ireland. Many years later, he escaped, found his way to Europe, back into England, went through some training, and became a missionary himself. His name, you will recognize, it is Patrick. Some historians think he was elderly, 72 years old, when he went back to Ireland. And he gave the rest of his life to evangelizing the Irish and understanding them as few have before or since. By the time Patrick died, much of Ireland was Christian. And so Patrick and his team had done such an exceptional job of preaching the gospel, there was no opportunity for red martyrdom. And some of the Christians kind of lamented the fact that there was no way to die for Jesus on the Emerald Isle. So the Irish being the Irish, they innovated. There's a delightful little book by Thomas Cahill called how the Irish saved civilization, and he tells the story of the Irish and how they would make these missional monasteries at crossroads of trade routes. They weren't the monasteries of the Desert Fathers in Egypt who were trying to escape the world. The Irish wanted to engage the world, so they'd build their settlements at these crossroads. They'd put the scriptorium in the center. The chapel would be there, a, a dining hall, a place for visitors to lodge, their houses around the periphery, and then a fence. And monks would station themselves at the gate, and when travelers would come, they would greet them, invite them in, take them to the abbot who would pray for them, inquire of their news, send them in to get a meal with another monk who would give them lodging, and then another monk would bring them to vespers or the different types of prayers. And before the travelers knew what was happening, these uh, monks had incorporated them into their community. They felt like they belonged, and this was the genius of Patrick and the Irish because they did belong. They were embraced and accepted into this loving community. And it was radical in that day because the Roman church did it so differently. They presented a propositional truth and demanded someone would agree to it before they created community. And much of the evangelism that we have been taught over the last few decades is the same way. But what Patrick did was he formed community. People felt like they belonged. And over a process of time, their belief changed. And it was much more natural. It was much more life on life. It was much more relational. And we see from history what great effect it had in Ireland. There's a tension here because what I have espoused sounds very nice. It sounds very good. And you might be asking yourself, well, how is that a death? How is that a green martyrdom? What is so uh, challenging about that? Well, the death was a death of will inside community because these monks had to give up their preferences and their schedules and their opinions. They had to submit their wills one to another 
And that is a very, very difficult thing to do. Because the theory of community, the theory of marriage, the theory of church, the theory of team, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But all of us who've gone through those different processes know how painful and difficult and what type of death is involved in that. Because missionary teams splinter, Paul and Barnabas, churches divide, countries divorce like my adopted Sudan July 9th of this year, marriages struggle. If the red martyrdom is dying physically for Jesus, the green martyrdom involves laying down your life for one another, and I think the green martyrdom is so much harder because you have to do it hour by hour, day by day, yielding what you think is important, yielding what you're comfortable with to someone else. Considering someone else better than yourself is a brutal thing to do day in, day out for all of your life. Francis Xavier said this, Come with me and change the world. I want to issue that appeal to you. Come with us and change the world. In the Muslim world, there is such a dearth of people who are living the community of Jesus in a winsome way that can receive Arabs and others who would like to follow Jesus. But if they do, they're kicked out of their community and there's no receiving community for them. And we believe what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in this hour is that the body of Christ from around the world, red, green, yellow, black, and white, must come together and model this winsome community right in the center and heart of Islam so that Muslims can come into the kingdom. I have a friend who was an elder at a Presbyterian church in Khartoum, Christian Arab minorities, and over the last 15 years they saw about 200 Muslims come to faith, but less than five of those remain in fellowship because how they did community didn't absorb and receive these Arab Muslims. It was so foreign, it was so Christian in culture, the way that men and women interacted, the way that the women dressed, the way that the service was held, everything was so foreign and they demanded that these Muslims leave what was culturally known to them and, and almost become a different culture before they would come into Christ and it was a bridge too far from them. And we don't even mean bad by how we operate. For example, I took an Arab Muslim friend to church once. It happened to be communion. They passed the emblems. The bread was all in a plate and he had no idea what that was. A big man, he reached in his hand took a whole fistful like it was popcorn and just sat there plopping him into his mouth. He thought it was snack time in church. He thought that's fun, but he did it. Does that make sense? Everything we do can be so foreign to others and we have to be cognizant of that. Now, it's not easy. We have 33 cities across the Muslim world we've identified that need teams. We have 12 teams in East Africa amongst the Rashida and amongst the Somalis in some of the most brutal places and we need a multinational approach to reach them. But it's difficult for an African and an American and an Asian and a European and a Latino to work together. The Latino wants to hug everybody and the European is very uncomfortable with physical touch. The African is so indirect that the American can never figure out what he's really saying. The Asian is so differential that he will always agree and you can't really get his opinion. You understand what I'm saying? It's very hard work. To, to do these things together, let alone when our wills and our comforts uh, are in tension with one another. You, you see how this is a green death. Uh, there's an African proverb about a hunter who shot a hippopotamus. He was out in the river, so he couldn't pull it in by himself. He went and got his colleagues from the village. They went out in a boat, tied a rope around the hippo, came back to the shore and began to pull on the rope together to get that hippo in so they could share the meat. 
They began to chant, Our hippopotamus, our hippopotamus, our hippopotamus. The hunter began to think, he said, you know, it's nice to be in this village community, but I'm the one who shot that, that hippo. That's kind of my hippo. So as he's pulling on that rope, he starts chanting to himself, my hippopotamus, my hippopotamus, my hippopotamus. So his friends pick up a stick. The hippo had almost come to shore. And they start pushing that hippo back out into the river. And they start chanting, your hippopotamus, your hippopotamus. Your hippopotamus. So the, t- the guy obviously changed his tune and started saying, Our hippopotamus, our hippopotamus, our hippopotamus. And they pulled the hippo in and shared their meat. The reality is that if we're going to reach Muslims, and Islam is the premier challenge to the church today, we cannot do it as the American church. We can't. We need the Asians and the Africans and the Latins. We need the full complement of the body of Christ. We need to combine strengths as a multifaceted diamond. So I repeat the call of Francis Xavier. Come with us and change the world. The last martyrdom I'd like to address this evening is the white martyrdom. And very simply, this is what it was. The monks in Ireland found that it wasn't enough to be comfortable and satiated with food, surrounded by friends and family. It wasn't enough to work hard so that your kids could have a safe life. It wasn't enough in this context to get a good job so your kids could get a good education, so that they could get a good job, so that your grandkids could get a good education, so that your great-grandkids could get a better job, so they could get a good education. Do you see how empty that is? Surely there has to be more purpose for us in life Surely, representing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Sovereign Creator of all creation has more for us than an endless cycle of comfort and convenience and preparing for the next generation to do the same thing. Surely, there's got to be more to it than that. And there is, because the great shepherd of the sheep is not content to be comfortable and surrounded by friends and family if there's only one that's lost. And the great passion of the heart of God is that every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation would have access to his person, access to his glory. And so what Patrick did was send his best. His heir apparent was a man named Kamalkil, and he sent him off as a missionary. Thomas Cahill writes, as he, Kamalkil, sailed off that morning, he was doing the hardest thing an Irishman could do, a much harder thing than giving up his life. He was leaving Ireland. If the green martyrdom had failed, here was a martyrdom that was surely equal of the red. And henceforth, all who followed Kamokil's lead were called to the white martyrdom. They who sailed into the white sky of morning, into the unknown, never to return. The Holy Spirit is still asking for people to leave the church at Indian Lake, to leave what is comfortable, to leave Nashville, to leave the United States of America, and to fly off into the white sky of morning, to live and to die amongst the unreached peoples of the earth who do not have access to the gospel. And I want to be clear. I understand that there's lost people in Nashville. I understand that there's people who aren't saved in your family. I get that. I understand that the Muslim in Mecca is not more lost 
than your friend and colleague in the cubicle next to you at work. I get that. But what I also understand is that the guy in Mecca doesn't have the access that the guy here in Nashville does. There's Christian books and there's Christian radio, there's Christian churches, there's you. There's so many other available options for people to hear the gospel. But what about the guy in Mecca? He doesn't have the access. He doesn't have the opportunity. And Jesus still wants us to sail off into the white sky of morning, perhaps never to return. So the guy in Mecca and the guy in Tripoli and the guy in Mogadishu and the woman in Kabul, Afghanistan and the children in Gaza Strip, Palestine have opportunities to hear about the wonderful love of Jesus that we have sung about today. God still wants someone in this room to die the white death, to leave everything that you love and to sail off, to fly off into the white sky of morning. We will, as I conclude, follow Jesus, live dead, shed our blood, witness in red, not because we're noble or courageous, not because we're morbid or cavalier, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth all things. We will follow Jesus, live dead, yield our wills, witness in green, church plant in teams, not because it's comfortable or easy, not without conflict and cost, not because it's natural or we're even able to do it, but because Jesus demands our unity and He blesses it. We will follow Jesus, live dead, send our best, witness in white, not because we're foolish and we don't love our moms and our dads, our sons and our daughters, not out of adventure, naivety, or pride, not because we're wise, but because Jesus loves all his children, all the peoples of the world. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. You might be wondering to yourself, who would respond to such a call? Who would respond to a call to die for Jesus and die to self and die to home and family and convenience and all that is comfortable? I think maybe we should flip the question. I started by saying the right conclusions depend on the right questions. Perhaps the right question is, who would not? Who would not? If you are willing to follow Jesus, should he so call, and work in a church planting team amongst unreached people, I would like to invite you to stand and come to the altar and kneel and pray. We're going to do a, a quiet altar call in response to the Spirit today. If you are willing to live dead and to witness in red or in green or in white, should Jesus require it, would you also come to the altar, kneel and pray? I want to ask everyone to close your eyes. Would you do that? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? I am not the Holy Spirit. I don't know what Jesus is saying to you. But I want you to respond to the Holy Spirit. 
And if you are willing, should Jesus ask you to honor him through the white or green or red martyrdom, I would like to ask you to express that by coming to these altars to pray. Is there anyone who would like to respond? Thank you for listening to the podcast of The Church of Indian Lake.